When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Cluster B personality disorders are characterized by dramatic, overly emotional, and unpredictable thoughts and behavior. From Ars Longa Media, this is Cluster B, scientifically informed, expert insights into the four Cluster B personality types, antisocial, borderline, narcissistic, and histrionic personality disorder. Here's today's host, Dr. Todd Grande. Hello, this is Dr. Grande. Today's question asks if I can take a look at a case study where there are several symptoms from many personality disorders, but it's not clear if the client fits into any one of the categories diagnostically. So another similar question I received would be, can I look at a case with unspecified personality disorder? So a case study, which is also called a case report, clinical vignette, a case analysis, a lot of different names, is when a clinician takes a look at a particular presentation and decides to write about it, to produce a report about it with the client's consent. It's typically for educational purposes. Now, the information is changed, but the clinical essence and theory stays the same. For example, the client's name is changed, where they live wouldn't be specified, and other details might be altered. So this particular case study I'll be reviewing today was published in an article in 2007, and it's really one of the best case reports I've read in a long time. It's precise and detailed. I'll be reviewing that case and adding my commentary and analysis to it. Now, in 2007, when this article was published, the version of the DSM that was being used was the DSM-4-TR, text revision. And psychopathology was divided using a multi-axial system. Mental disorders were coded as either Axis 1 or Axis 2. Axis 1 contained most mental disorders, like ones related to depression and anxiety, and Axis 2 contained chronic disorders of clinical significance. For example, personality disorders were coded on Axis 2. One of the goals of counseling during the assessment phase was to distinguish Axis 1 from Axis 2. Now, this article that contains the case study not only talks about the presentation, but it also contemplates categorical classification of personality disorders versus dimensional approaches, which of course is still an ongoing debate, which is beyond the scope of this video, but it provides an interesting backdrop for this particular clinical vignette. The clinician that produced this report conducted several diagnostic interviews over a period of three weeks, including a thorough history, asking for descriptions of potential symptoms, assessing mental status, and using psychometric instruments. 
The client in this diagnostic vignette was a 56-year-old single white male of Eastern European descent. I'll refer to him as Michael. The article refers to him as Mr. E, but Michael is just easier to say for me, so I'm going with that. So Michael came to therapy because he was summoned for jury duty. He was anxious about serving, and he wanted a note from the clinician that he could provide to the clerk of the court. This is actually a remarkably common request that mental health clinicians see in practice. Now, what really stands out about this part was that Michael wasn't anxious because he was afraid of being around other people in a situation like you'd see serving on a jury. Rather, he was anxious because he thought he might not like the people he was working with and would feel contempt toward them. Michael came to the United States at age 24. He worked as an illustrator and a production artist, so we see he had artistic talent. At one point, we see he was the art director for an advertising firm. He really didn't get along too well with his coworkers. He felt like his coworkers were always looking for shortcuts, and he felt that their work was inferior. He also thought that it compromised artistic standards. Not surprisingly, given his attitude toward his coworkers, they didn't like him either. They thought of him as eccentric, perfectionistic, inflexible, and as a loner. This is an interesting combination of descriptors because it touches on really symptoms from three personality disorders, schizoid, schizotypal, and obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. Now, it was during this time that Michael's field was becoming more dependent on software. Michael had opportunities to learn new programs, but he wouldn't do it. He made this decision knowing that it might cause him to eventually lose his job. Now, this advertising firm kept him around for a while as his skills were still quite useful, but eventually they did fire him. After this, he went to work as a freelance illustrator and did well for a while. He actually made more money doing this than he did working for the company. But there came a point where he simply couldn't escape the reality of the necessity of learning the software. Eventually, he found himself having very little work and supported himself with a small income and from an inheritance he received after his father passed away a few years before this. Michael had some difficulty with his home life as well. He lived alone in an apartment building, but he had trouble getting along with his neighbors. Michael routinely complained to the landlord about noises that the neighbors made, reaching a point where he wouldn't even pay his rent. He put a microphone in his apartment to record the noise level from the apartment upstairs, thinking that he may have to use it in court someday. He was thinking that the landlord was going to take him to court for not paying the rent. Michael had this ongoing dream of a project of restoring his apartment in line with 18th century French architecture. He had a special interest in this area due to his mother. His interest wasn't directly related to his mother's influence on him, but rather he had an interest in this historical period because he felt like the style was consistent with his mother's appreciation for beauty and refinement. For the same reason, he owned an old Rolls Royce that did not run. Michael had an admiration for objects of beauty that demonstrated superior workmanship. Now, I'm not really sure how this fits in with the Rolls Royce. Of course, I've never owned one. They're very expensive. But I have known a few people that had older Rolls Royce cars, and they are really maintenance nightmares. So are they objects of beauty? I suppose. I mean, they're good-looking cars. But do they demonstrate superior workmanship? I've never found that to be the case. Again, they're maintenance nightmares and particularly expensive to get parts for. But either way, I digress. Back to this case study. 
he started to work more on this project of restoring his apartment after his work opportunities decreased. He apparently negotiated with a number of artisans and craftsmen about his design ideas. Eventually, they stopped taking his calls because they felt like his design ideas were going nowhere. He repeated himself frequently, and he would not compromise. They also found him to be generally annoying. Now, I mentioned the indirect influence of Michael's mother, so moving back to the topic of his mother. We see that Michael has a great respect for his mother. He was 27 when she died. He described her as classy, well-educated, beautiful. She had an appreciation for quality fabrics and fine jewelry. He had dreams where he was dancing with her or walking with her in a park, and she was dressed up and stunning. He wanted everything in his dream to be perfect. So what we really see here is he idealized his mother. He had an idealized version of his mother in his cognition, in his thinking. Now, Michael's father was a different story. Michael described his father as selfish, dismissive, crude, detached, and unkind to his mother. The father resented Michael's relationship with the mother, including the shared interests they had in the arts. Now, in terms of Michael's childhood, he appeared to be somewhat isolated during his childhood. He had a few friends, but none really had a common interest with him. He didn't have any interest in sports or games and seemed to enjoy spending time alone. He engaged in a fair amount of fantasizing. He had an interest in fairy tales and would play out scenes where knights rescued princesses. It was during this time that he developed an interest in 18th century French art, as well as the French aristocracy from that same time period. He would fantasize about being part of this aristocracy and enjoying a life where he was part of that court, so the court life, including the sense of civility and refinement associated with that lifestyle. As I mentioned, I thought this case report was excellent. However, I was a little surprised that there wasn't more about Michael's childhood, especially considering the clinician approached the case psychodynamically, and that theoretical modality really emphasizes childhood experiences. Now, it could be that Michael really didn't want to talk about his childhood. We see in the report, the clinician mentions that Michael interrupted him several times when being asked about his childhood. There are several potential reasons why more information about Michael's childhood would not have been collected or included, but again, it just would have been nice to have in there. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, so while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one -on -one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who've overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection, and interview top thought leaders, game changers, and survivors. 
It is from these stories that we learn what resilience is, how to heal, how to recover, and how to be brave. Now, Michael had an interesting history in terms of mood. Starting in his adolescence, he had anxiety and some mood dysphoria, as well as occasional periods of depression. But these episodes only lasted a few days. He also had brief periods of feeling unusually happy and energetic. During this time, he was more creative and he could think more clearly. He didn't, however, report any problems with sleep. He didn't have racing thoughts. He wasn't reckless. And he didn't appear to have, in his childhood anyway, grandiosity or irritability. Now, the clinician ruled out a manic episode, and I'll talk more about hypomania or psychothymic disorder in a few moments. Now, back to the time where Michael was in therapy. Here, Michael acknowledged that he was isolated both at work and at home. And he had a few friends who shared his interest in art, but not really many meaningful connections. He had a history of short-lived romantic relationships. Most of the times, these relationships were ended by the women, mostly because they became tired of Michael's behavior. One woman who was a potential romantic interest referred to Michael as stuffy. Michael ended a few of the relationships himself, and his reason was because the women were not cultured enough. Michael thought he was refined and sophisticated in a way that few people could appreciate him. So now moving to the clinician's findings and my thoughts about this case. It's important to note here that the clinician had a vastly better position. This clinician wrote the report, and of course there was probably information that wasn't included in the report. And it's a good time to mention that I'm not diagnosing anybody, only speculating about what could have been happening in a situation like this. Now, in addition to the clinical interview, the clinician administered the revised NEO personality inventory. This is referred to as the NEO-PIR and the Milan Clinical Multi-Axle Inventory. In this case, he was using the MCMI-3. The clinician believed that Michael's symptoms did not satisfy the full criteria for a major mood disorder, like major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder. Specifically, there was a problem here with the duration and frequency requirements. They really weren't satisfied. Although he did think that the symptoms otherwise pointed to depression and hypomania. He believed the closest diagnosis was a disorder that was called psychothymia. Nowadays, that would be referred to as psychothymic disorder. So it's really a disorder where we see some depressive symptoms, but they don't meet the full criteria for a major depressive episode, and some symptoms of hypomania, but they don't quite meet the diagnostic criteria for a major manic episode. So it's sometimes referred to as bipolar 3 disorder, kind of like low-grade depression and low-grade mania, but again, not technically meeting the definition of depression or mania. Now, the MCMI indicated personality disturbances related to depressive and dependent personality with avoidant and schizoid features. So depressive personality disorder is not an official mental disorder. It was last listed as an official personality disorder in the DSM-2, but it is still part of the MCMI-3. So that's why the instrument reported that finding. It still had that as a potential outcome. The five-factor model profile generated by the NEO-PIR indicated that Michael had above-average openness to experience. Now, this isn't really surprising considering his interest in artistic items. We also see below-average conscientiousness, this is a little surprising. We see low extroversion. I don't think this one is too surprising, given that he was 
characterized as a loner. We see slightly above average agreeableness. This is a little bit surprising. I would think he'd be more on the disagreeable side. We also see extremely high neuroticism. He was over three standard deviations above the mean on neuroticism. I would have expected higher than average neuroticism, but not this high. So that's a little surprising. Now, this profile aligned with schizotypal, narcissistic, borderline, avoidant, and dependent personality disorder features, but it did not align with schizoid and obsessive compulsive personality disorder features. So this means that the only real alignment between these instruments would be avoidant personality disorder and dependent personality disorder, which I find pretty unusual given this presentation, and I'll talk more about this in a few moments. The clinician believed that there was personality pathology, but he noted that the client really didn't seem to fit into any one personality disorder really clearly. There wasn't a clear match to a personality disorder or to even several personality disorders. The full criteria didn't appear to be met for, again, any one distinct disorder. Now, the equivalent findings these days for something like this would be unspecified personality disorder. You have an individual, a client, and they have symptoms across several personality disorders, but they don't meet the full criteria for one. Often that would be unspecified personality disorder. So what are my thoughts on this case, my analysis? Well, I agree that psychothymic disorder seems like a good possibility. In terms of personality pathology, it gets a lot more complex. Looking at cluster A, so that would be paranoid, schizoid, schizotypal. With paranoid personality disorder, I really don't see much here at all. With schizoid, I'm also not really seeing a connection. He meets a few criteria, but not enough for diagnosis. Schizotypal seems to fit the best of the cluster A personality disorders, but again, not enough of the criteria are met. So I don't really think here we're looking at anything from cluster A in terms of a diagnostic impression. Now with cluster B, the only possibility here would really be narcissistic personality disorder. I don't see any evidence for borderline histrionic or antisocial personality disorders. Now in terms of narcissistic personality disorder, we do see a sense of grandiosity, a sense that somebody's special, arrogance, a sense of entitlement, although the clinician who wrote the case report disagreed with the idea of entitlement. He believed that there was not evidence of entitlement. In terms of the other criteria, we see that Michael has fantasies, but they're really not the type of fantasy we expect to see with narcissistic personality disorder. We don't see fantasies of exaggerated success, power, wealth, and all that. There is some connection in terms of idealization. With NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, we tend to see that the individual has a fantasy of an ideal romantic relationship. What Michael has is really an idealization of his mother's beauty. So I don't think these really quite line up for this particular symptom criterion. We also really don't see much evidence of manipulation, a need for excessive admiration, envy. Lack of empathy is really less clear. There might be that to some extent, but it's hard to really know if it's enough to meet the symptom criterion. For a diagnosis of NPD, you have to have five of the nine criteria. And again, here we don't really seem to have enough. This is closer, I think, than what we see in cluster A but not quite enough to make the diagnosis. Now, interestingly, for me, it kind of hinges on the lack of empathy, which of course I mentioned, it's not really clear. So if we had more information about whether he truly lacked empathy, that could really change, right? So we're sitting kind of right on the fence here. Not quite enough 
but with one small change, it could have enough for this diagnosis. So what about cluster C personality pathology? So this would be avoidant, dependent, and obsessive compulsive personality disorders. Well, there are references, of course, made to avoidant and dependent. I mentioned those, but I'm not really seeing this at all. I don't see anything really aligning with the criteria for avoidant personality disorder or dependent personality disorder. Now, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, that's a whole different situation. I think this is actually the closest in terms of trying to fit one personality disorder diagnosis to this particular presentation. With OCPD, four of eight criteria are required. So in terms of preoccupation with details, orders, rules, lists, organizations, and schedules, I think that's a possibility. In terms of perfectionism, I think that one's pretty clear. That would be a yes. In terms of being excessively devoted to being productive to the exclusion of friendships, like being productive at work, I would say yes. This one's a little bit unclear, but if I had to pick one or the other, I would say probably this one would be endorsed. The next criterion is being over-conscientious, scrupulous, and inflexible about matters of morality, ethics, or values. Now, this one's pretty interesting. I don't think this one's clear. We know that Michael had a low score on conscientiousness, which I mentioned was a surprise. However, we know with OCPD, an individual with this disorder doesn't actually have to have high conscientiousness. That seems counterintuitive, but that seems to be what the research is pointing toward. Either way, though, with this particular symptom criterion, I'm not sure he meets this criterion. In terms of throwing out worn-out objects, maybe it's not really clear. We need more information on this. Looking at being reluctant to delegate tasks because they want things done in an exact way, he wasn't really in a position where he would have the authority to delegate tasks, but I would say he does appear to meet the symptom criterion, right? He does seem to have this way about him where he wants things done a certain way. The next symptom criterion is having a miserly spending style toward oneself and others. We don't really see evidence of this. And the last symptom is rigidity and stubbornness. And I think it's pretty clear he meets this one. So this more or less gives us the four out of eight, right? Again, a few aren't perfectly clear, but he does technically meet the full criteria for OCPD. So if somebody meets enough of the criteria for a diagnosis, we use the term full criteria. It's a little misleading because it sounds like I'm talking about all eight criteria, right? Full criteria would be all eight, but actually full criteria in this case would be, again, the minimum that's necessary for a diagnosis or more. So four is enough to have full criteria met. So those are my thoughts on this particular case, the case of Michael. I thought this was an incredibly thought-provoking case. And again, just a great write-up. There are a few things I would have done a little differently in the case report in terms of the organization of the information, but overall, it was really excellent. This case also illustrates the challenges of categorical diagnostic procedures, and this is something we really need to pay attention to. A lot of times you see presentations in clinical practice that don't seem to line up with any particular disorder, including when you're looking at personality pathology. So it's a good skill to be able to contemplate a case in this way. It's really good practice because, again, we see this quite often. For more content like this, check out Healthy Toxic, another podcast from Ars Longa Media, all about what makes or breaks relationships, including issues related to narcissism, narcissistic abuse, and how personality disorders affect relationships. 
Ars Longa Vita Brevis. Learn more at ArsLonga.media. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.